This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with author George Megalogenis. He joined me in the studio to talk about the history and current state of play of Australian politics, as well as the ideological spectrum and how our major parties have changed over time. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. As mentioned, uh, I have a very special guest here with me in the studio. He is George Megalogenis and he joins me now. Hi, George. Hi, Amy. Good. How are you? Good, good. It's That's a slow good. crawl getting into town, isn't it? It is. Or getting to the side of town. It is very, because you just mentioned you are from across the other side of the river, controversially. Yeah, controversially, but yes. basically every every second um, street I turn into has got a big truck sitting across it with a uh, with a uh, apartment development going up or something else happening. Yeah. There used to be a time when politicians would say, look at all those cranes in the skies and a great thing, but <laughs> I think now people are annoyed with the uh, sort of tedium of getting from A to B. It is a tedious prospect, isn't it? And that's one of the... Uh, the areas that you mention um, in your recent works is around transport and infrastructure and the great lack of investment that we have over the long term, a, a vision, at, as you will, uh, for infrastructure and also bipartisanship. It, it seems to be a bit of a political football. It's a strange one. So we've, um, I like to take these things back a couple of decades because there was a consensus that sort of developed through the 80s, informed by a lot of things that went wrong in the 70s, that the government was in had its fingers in too many pies, in, in not just in terms of, you know, interventions, but they basically ran too many businesses and they ran them badly. So through the 80s, you know, you sort of take the shackles off the dollar floats, financial systems deregulated, tariff war comes down. Mm. And then Privatisation? Well, that's the, that's, the, that's the big question mark because I think that's the one even all the economic rationalists now look back and say, well, that was, that was sort of the ideology too far. Mm. So the four big prices that were taken off the cabinet table, the dollar, interest rates, uh, tariffs, you know, basically price of imports and um, wages, mm. all came off the cabinet table. But then the privatisation story, and it's been interesting to watch, uh, we talk about Turnbull in a sec with energy policy, but if you think about what went wrong beginning with the sale of Telstra, the thing they should have done at the start, which they are now trying to reverse engineer by the sort of creation of the NBN, they had to separate the wholesale from the retail. So, you know, the business that sold you a telephone plan or, you know, basically conducted the transaction with a household it had to be separated from the business that ran the network because if you wanted competition yeah but one company owned the networks it's equivalent mm. of Qantas owning all the uh, all the terminals at an airport and it never made sense but it was done that way they the uh, coalition government won a lot of money they wanted to get their biggest bang for their buck so they basically handed over a monopoly a public monopoly into private hands and a, a, a monopolies behave badly whether in public or private hands, but over the long haul, they actually behave worse in, public, in private hands. Mm. And the one-off sugar hit you get to the budget, you never get it back because that money gets spent when you yeah, get it. very quickly. And you lose your dividends, you lose all sorts of things, you actually lose control. And I think, that, you know, we sort of began with a little whinge about how long it took to get here. <laughs> <laughs> Governments have spent a lot of time convincing themselves that staying out of the way was the best thing to do. Now, the public doesn't think that. And the public haven't thought that at all. I mean, they sort of bought the um, deregulation bargain up to a point in the 80s and 90s, but they want governments to 
solve problems for mm. them. And they don't think in the sort of, uh, you know, that sort of very tribal, almost university politics ideologies now you get on both sides. People don't think that way. I don't mean, you know, people aren't thinking. The things that concern, you know, your regular voter... Uh, basically getting from A to B. I mean, if they're a family, they're worried about their kids' education, they're worried about health. If they're a student, they're actually worried about home ownership at some point because mm. they figure coming up, coming out of com- coming out of high school and then uni with a, with a debt and in, in possibly unaffordable property options and and you know quite nasty little rental options at the moment. Uh, those things people think governments can do something about government say oh the market can do these things for you the market keeps sending a signal back to the household that we'd like to rip you off so Mm. that's i didn't uh, that last essay it's an interesting one because i get a lot of pollies and a lot of public servants have, have sort of been talking about it to me since the thing ran and i've been getting a lot of invites to address public servants behind closed doors and a couple of other organizations i won't go into too much detail and it's weird to hear them say it seems so obvious, but we can't get our heads around it. And it's very <laughs> difficult to convince ministers yeah. to get back in the game, to mm. get back in the game of, well, infrastructure, to get back in the game of trying to figure out what your education system should look like. So the public system has to, has to, be, has to be raised, has to be raised to a better level. Uh, think about not letting costs get out of control in health. Those things seem obvious, but I, I guess the problem has been for this generation of politicians – their only reference point, apart from maybe the odd documentary on Gough Whitlam, their only reference mm. point is really Hawking Howard, and that's a deregulation reference point. So that generation that's followed them keep thinking that I've got to stay out, I've got to stay out. Yes. Yes, and we, we spoke with Laura Tingle actually about her quarterly essay, which is quite complementary to yours, Great Expectations. Yes. And yours, the one we're referring to, is called Balancing Act. You obviously did another one before that. I think it was Trivial Pursuit. Trivial Pursuit. Yeah. That was a long time ago and it was uh, sadly still current. <laughs> yes, it was one it of those ones you wanted, to, you wanted to be right at the time but wrong ultimately. Like yeah. you wanted people to say, well, yeah, 2010 was a We've rotten election on. campaign but we'll move on. Yeah. No, in fact, two, I thought, I mean, 2010 was a bit of a tipping point for me in terms of my journalism. I couldn't mm. imagine continuing daily media if that was the quality of the, if that was the subject matter. Yes. And it's one of the reasons why I sort of, I wouldn't say drifted out, I, you know, going long form with books and the odd documentary is, you know, sort of keeps me doing the thing that I used to do before mm. the media sped up. Yeah. But I would have thought both sides looking at that particular election campaign, the Gillard versus uh, Abbott mm. election campaign, plus, you know, the subplot of Gillard versus Rudd, you would have thought both sides would go, never again. Mm-hmm. But what was the Abbott Prime Ministership about and what was that 2016 election campaign about? In fact, it was more trivial in the 2016 campaign, I think, than there was even in the 2010 campaign. In the 2010 campaign, there was still an understanding that you had to address things like climate change. By the time you get to 2016, uh, the most complex issues, and you've got a brainiac like Malcolm Turnbull who should be able to uh, walk and chew gum on some of these topics, uh, it's now too difficult to even discuss a problem yeah because positions are now so entrenched that it's almost like a really really bad marriage where you're better off not opening your mouth because you know what's coming next 
Indeed. Well, one of the hot topics at the moment which highlights this is energy policy. Uh, And it's very disturbing to see that there really is a huge vacuum here from the government itself. It obviously has the Finkel report which came out, which it's now somewhat distancing itself from. And they have left this vacuum whereby they're saying they will respond to it and make a decision by the end of the year. Meanwhile, we're having discussions about, oh, well, electricity prices are high, so we're going to have a chat with the CEOs to see if they can do something for you. I mean, this has become a very superficial discussion, hasn't it? Yeah, it's not too hard to deconstruct what Malcolm is trying, what Malcolm Turnbull's trying to do. Malcolm Turnbull's instinct is, I have to intervene. I have to tell companies to keep coal-fired power stations running. I have to tell CEOs to to quarantine some of the gas supply for domestic use. All that is interventionist, right? Mm. But you would think it would run counter to anything that the Liberal Party has stood for in the last 30 or so years. Now, the reason, the reason and it's funny, he, he gets it intellectually, he needs to do something, but he doesn't have any lever to pull. And this is the point that Laura was making in Great Expectations. We've yes. almost forgotten how to govern because we spent so long getting out of the way that the generation that we're dealing with now... Uh, confronted with problems that you just can't regulate your way out of, Mm. confronted with problems that demand the government make a choice on behalf of the national interest. And it is funny watching him. In fact, he's he's more interventionist in terms of his rhetoric than any politician on either side of politics since Whitlam. Yes. Well, particularly interventionist, and I was very shocked when this happened, was when he did uh, have an emergency meeting with Andy Vesey from uh, AGL to say, we really demand that you go back to your board and put forward the suggestion that we need to keep open Liddell. I mean, to me, that's shocking to have a Liberal government tell business what to do. It's not even... I mean, the other thing is <coughs> his urge is to get, get involved, but he uh, not only does he not have levers to pull, it's not his jurisdiction. Mm. So the Federation doesn't say the Prime Minister... It's, it, Prime Minister, the Constitution's silent on the title. Prime Minister isn't mentioned in the Constitution, but the Federation was never framed uh, along the lines of the most important politician in Australia intervening in what is essentially a state and a, and a market issue. So he's... Um, he's he, I think he's... I mean, give him credit. He knows that there's a problem and he's trying to fix mm. it. The difficulty he's got is he's got a party room that half of them literally don't believe that there's a longer game to play here and that is to uh, to move to uh, renewables. They don't believe climate change is a thing and, in fact, they think climate change is some nutty conspiracy. And it's really diff- it'd be very difficult to govern in that circumstance. I got, I, got, I got a lot of sympathy for him on that score. But, again... Take it back a step. The tricky thing he's trying to do is to become, in a sense, a command control, socialist style, interventionist style, but liberal prime minister. It's not a good fit. No. And you have mentioned uh, in that quarterly essay that uh, in terms of the economically reformist governments, it was really the Labor governments that went in and did big, big things. They'd gone into opposition, re, like modelled themselves for the circumstances yep. and the times and then came in to make big changes. Liberal governments uh, get in trouble when they make huge changes generally and they're obviously their uh, key constituents like the status quo in general. Um, but what is the Australian history around liberalism and conservatism with the Liberal Party? 
because I'd like to understand a bit more about, um, you know, the ideology and the foundations, yeah. how that's evolving or, uh, or how much the Liberal Party is moving away from its legacy. I'm still, trying to, I'm still trying to get my head around how it became, and it obviously started with John Howard, how it became that the Liberal Party became the more ideological party. Because traditionally, and you go back to the first decade and a half of Federation, the Labor Party wanted to be a standalone party, wasn't going to enter into any coalition, and they only had to wait 10 years before they got government in their own right. They were the first Labor government to win a majority on the low, in the lower house and in the Senate. First mm. Labor government anywhere of its type in the world. And so to the left, to the centre-left, there, there is an idea of a working-class-based governing party. So up until... Keating. Your history tells you that Australians elect these Labor governments to change things. And after a couple of terms, maybe in the Whitlam case, a bit longer in the Hawke Keating case and certainly in the Curtin Chifley case, um, that we switched to Conservatives to settle things down. And so, you know, all the action is on the centre left and the centre right is basically basically managing. Mm. It is reversed, and we know it's reversed because we know it's reversed because of the way the Liberal Party talk about what their mission is. Their mission is to tell people how to live their lives. Their mission is to punish industry that doesn't sign up to their political agenda. Their mission is to basically pick fights. Their mission is to intervene in the press, uh, to basically use the press, to hound people out of um, out of uh, positions and sort of whether it's government or quasi-government uh, positions. They, uh, they've become quite, I don't want to overdo this because it's not a partisan observation, but they've become quite ideological but in a vicious way, if I can say that, without, yeah. without it being taken the wrong way. I'm not, normally Labor was like this. And Labor was like this a lot in opposition in the 50s and 60s. And, of course, Australians didn't want them in that, in that manifestation. So until Labor sort of found, because it was a little too, not even too far to the left, Labor, remember, in the 50s and 60s, a split along sectarian lines. And a lot of their policies literally had no resonance in middle Australia, but they clung to them because they would rather be, um, you know, uh, morally pure in opposition than be compromised by power. The Liberal Party are behaving with power like the Labor Party in the 50s and 60s. And it's even trickier for them because the public expectation of them is that they will manage and manage modestly. So I think uh, until, until the system sort of whatever the new normal is and we're clearly not in what is a settled period in public life at the moment, until this thing settles down, you, you, you are in, in, you're running the risk of having a lot of one- and two-term governments and flipping back and forward. The revolving door of the Prime Ministership keeps spinning and the next one is less qualified than the last one who's less qualified mm. than the one before. So it's... Uh, I could be pessimistic about it. I'm, I, I tell people I'm short-term pessimist, long-term <laughs> optimist. I remain optimistic about this country, but I think at the moment you'd have to say that they're struggling. They're struggling not just with, the, with who they are and what they stand for. I think they think they know who they are and what they stand for, but it doesn't resonate. Mm. The other thing is... And we think about the ideologies and we think about the question of left and right. In the past, we did have an agreed set of problems to solve and then an argument about the means. So identify a problem, the ends might have even been different, but the argument was about means. That was what the politics was about. At the moment, if somebody says X is a problem, the other side will say, no, it isn't. Mm. 
Not only is it not a problem, but we are 100% right sticking to the path we're on. And it is a very, very difficult difficult place to conduct your democracy around, where both sides are so uh, unwilling to even allow, you know, their opponent airtime, even a second of airtime to acknowledge that they both agree that there is a problem to solve. So we, I mean, we began by talking about public transport. One of the reasons I mentioned public transport in the essay is it's almost brain snap material that a Labor government is devoted to rail and a Liberal mm. government is devoted to roads. You change government in 2010 and then again in uh, 2013, whenever it was, 2014. Yep. The incoming Labor government, having watched the previous bailu Napthine government uh, tread water on rail, uh, on the expansion of the rail network, inherits uh, uh, the East West Link, which is a road project. Not only do they not want that, they are willing to pay the contractor close to a billion dollars not to do any work. <laughs> This stuff is nuts, right? Yes. It is nuts, right? Imagine, imagine, and this is the thing that usually makes the jaw drops when you when you ask politicians to imagine this. Imagine Menzies, Winston forty nine election, and he's inherited the Snowy Mountain scheme from um, Ben Chifley, and he said Menzies and Chifley were friends, right? But imagine Menzies says, "No, nah, I'll uh, I'll deliver it, but won't take a drop of water out of it." Sorry, I'll. Complete the project, honour the contract, but I won't take a drop of water out because it's your dumb idea. Mm. And in fact, I'm going to leave that thing as a white elephant and I'm going to go do something completely different, almost counter to the thing that you're doing. Now, I guess I certainly anticipate a question, but how the hell did they get into that mindset? Yes. That that's, how you conduct, that that's how you conduct public affairs. Mm. How did they get into that mindset? And I think both parties will tell you, and they acknowledge this, that a lot of their a lot of their um, machinery, their advisor class, their caucuses, their party rooms uh, have only done the one thing, which is politics. Mm. And that doesn't mean they don't have real life experience. You know, they operate in the real world. They've got friends and family connections in the real world. It is that's the only thing they've ever done. And they were raised to, especially in student politics, raised in that sort of you know total combat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Almost violent. Yes. Yes. Um, and you have mentioned in the past this idea that, and you've spoken to a few politicians about it, that their idea is, well, I've been doing politics, but I'm not doing government. Yes. I'm not governing. And that is quite a significant, well, disturbing situation because isn't that their job to, when they're in government, govern and uh, and have some level of continuity? Yeah, it's funny. And you think about this with can take this conversation beyond australia and this is a this is obviously an observation you can make globally it is kind of too easy to campaign and kind of too easy to be the opponent it's kind of too easy at the moment because we're in an anti-establishment cycle to run against the incumbent and in fact all the things you say to knock off the incumbent usually involve promising the world to voters and you hope that that person whoever it is you know, whether it was tony abbott or whether it was Kevin Rudd in 2007 or whether it's Malcolm Turnbull now, you hope that that person knows that, okay, when I am sitting in the desk and I have to start making decisions and I'm in my cabinet room and we're, and we're thrashing out an issue and trying to hear as many... Um, trying to see this issue from as many angles as possible, contest the advice, you hope that they remember, you know, we promised the world, but 
now we have to explain to people why we can't do it this way but have to do it that way. That's not the way they govern. The way they govern is to continue to pretend that the things they said in opposition are not only, you know, iron laws, um, they get themselves tied up in extraordinary knots trying to deliver things that they knew they should have known if they were competent. They should never have promised in the first place. Abbott was the most interesting example of this. Not only did he not know how to govern, when he got into government, he knew that there was an expectation he should fix the budget and he thought, well, all right, okay, I'm going to do the switch now. I'm going to go really crazy with this budget. Yes, and include the BCA in that. <laughs> yeah, but I, didn't, I didn't, haven't broken any promises. Mate, seriously. The, look, obviously, the, and always try to leave this guy out of the conversation till the very end. Mm-hmm. Trump is the worst example of this. Like, this is now writ large in the US system because Republicans control the Congress and they've got the White House and they're still thinking like the opposition party. His rhetoric is all, is all campaign rhetoric. It's mm-hmm. all sort of world championship wrestling rhetoric. But the, but the Republicans between them can't, between the Senate and the, and the House of Reps, can't, can't get their head around how to enact legislation to fulfil the, you know, in, in the case of um, repealing Obamacare, mm-hmm. to fulfil what you think was the reason you got into politics in the first place. So what is that? It's um, part of it's the media age we're in. Part of it's the skill set of the polys. You have to accept that they aren't uh, as good as they think they are. But the operating environment is obviously very different to what it might have been in the 80s or the 90s. It's a lot harder, especially, and go back to media, it's a lot harder to sustain an argument. It's a lot harder, it's, it's easy to recognise what the problem is, but it's a lot harder than patiently walk and lecture it through the, all the options until you landed a solution. I think that's the um, thing a lot of people are trying to get their heads around. Mm. But I would argue, and I'm probably a bit old school about this, I would argue if, you, if your policy is good enough, it doesn't matter what media disruption is going on out there, you should still be able to explain it. You'll get people's attention. Yes. And the other issue which you've uh, referenced here is that the facts are often contested. The facts of the situation, even the assessment of the problem is highly contested. So there's such a huge lack of consensus at all that you find it almost impossible to get to a point of even developing a policy. Yeah. And, and this is the crucial point. So uh, I just did an event with Gareth Evans last night at uh, the readings in Hawthorne and he wants more consensus. But as we're, as we're having the he says, you know, need to restore some idea of grand bargains between both sides of politics. And as we've sort of tossing that idea around in the question and his response, I made the point, and I make it here now, I repeat it here now, it's less about them agreeing on what the solution is, but actually identifying the problem. Mm, absolutely. And I think when you're looking for bipartisanship, you're actually looking for them at least to behave sensibly enough as adults to be able to agree in the national interest, we have to do something about climate change. In the national interest, you can't have a situation where uh, people can't get on a train to get to work on time because the stopping all is going mi- to skip your platform because it's over full. Look, you can't have a situation like that. You can't have a situation where the next drought comes, you're not sure that the water supply is secure. You can't have a situation where you're going to get brownouts and possibly blackouts coming this summer because your energy market, for whatever reason, is not functioning. You can't have these things um, happening. You can argue about how to fix them, but you just can't have these things a- accepted. And, but unfortunately, what we were alluding to earlier, what happens is if one side says this is the problem, the other side feels compelled to pretend it isn't because they don't want to give them, they don't want to give them the credit of having called it out first. 
Now, it's actually, if you could unpick it, you can pick any, you can actually take any issue. And I'll go back to Abbott because Abbott, in a funny way, not that he starts it, but he, he's emblematic of it. He didn't start it. He's not that greater polemicist that he made everybody else go crazy around him. I think people have mm. all been drinking the same water. So in the middle of 2009, as Turnbull and, and Rudd are beginning the dance on, on emissions trading, I don't know, do you remember this? So you know oh, he yes. He was talking <laughs> about a carbon tax. Yeah. And as a front page story on The Australian, uh, I, I talked to him at the time as well because I was still on The Australian then. And, and why did he mention carbon tax? Looking back, I know why he mentioned carbon tax because the other two weren't talking about it. So he thinking, oh, I'll pluck this idea that the other two aren't talking about and it seems simpler, you know, we'd sort of cut to the quick and we'll get there. Carbon tax, right? Mm. Carbon tax. A couple of months and he was advising as the as the Liberal Party was advising Turnbull, get this thing off the table. Kevin Rudd is too popular. This issue is too popular. You know, public want action. It cost it was one of the reasons why Howard lost the two thousand seven election. Let's let's just move on. A couple of months later, Rudd and Turnbull for whatever reason, even though they know they need to cut a deal, they fall out. Uh, and Rudd, Rudd is trying to negotiate and also kill Turnbull at the same time, which you can't do, not in politics anyway, not, not, when, you're, not when you're trying to do the grand bargain. And it's a sort of policy that needs to survive a change of government to, mm. to be called a, a real reform. So late that year, Abbott finally Abbott wakes up one morning and decides he's a climate change sceptic. He wasn't when he was talking about carbon tax. And then turns up the following year, Rudd blows his brains out, uh, metaphorically, and suddenly he's gone from thinking this thing that I talked about nine months ago, oh, everyone's forgotten about that, I am so anti-carbon tax now, I'm going to call it a carbon tax, <laughs> even though that's not what it was. Yeah. It's, so that, and he got away with it, and I think that's probably, that tells you that it's not about him so much as that the operating environment is so disrupted that you can that you could spin arguments like that. You could have one position one week, another the other week, and all all really uh, sort of media attention on you is who's going to win the next fight. Mm. And I think that's that's when you're trying to unpack again what it is that's gone wrong in the last ten or fifteen years. And unfortunately, it's still going wrong. You only need to look out the window. And when we talk we talk about the energy debate, it's still going wrong because I think the incentives in the system at the moment are so are so stacked in favour of opposition, and I don't mean the opposition leader, but just the idea of no is, uh, is still the strongest word in public debate today, it's going to be very difficult to break this impasse. And how do we change that? Because clearly consensus did once exist. Obviously, the context has changed. Yeah. A lot of things have changed. But how can we possibly get back to a point of consensus? What are the key ingredients that make it up? And does media have a role to play in facilitating it? Yeah, it was media. I mean, if, if the media was where it was even 10 years ago, you could probably argue the media's role is to continue to cover policy and forget about the trivia. The media's not going to... You can't tell the media to do that. Uh, Annabelle Crabbe and I, and we did this about the same week, but we hadn't swapped notes, but we both declared after the 2010 election we'd never mention an opinion poll again because <laughs> that was one of the reasons. I thought that was one of the things disrupting. Yeah. And in fact, but we're getting more of them and they're less reliable. So media's role, we could criticise the media to an extent. I think the bigger issue is, and it's, and it's on the system, it's on the political parties... And I don't just mean the main parties. I also mean the Greens and I also mean the other minor parties. 
you have to you have to understand that when the public service gives advice, you have to respect that advice. And I don't think we've been in that position for a long, long time. Now, Turnbull is trying in a way... Remember when he took the job off Abbott, he said, I'm going to restore good cabinet government. Yes. Now, what that meant was... And every, every Prime Minister's office until the latter period of the Howard era had at the, at the apex of that office, the chief of staff, somebody with a public service background, not a political background, a public service background. And the advice, and Hawke is really the best of these, the advice from the chief of staff to the policy advisors and to the bureaucracy is give us the best advice. Don't second guess the politics. We can figure the politics out. That's what we're paid to do. Just give us the best advice. And the political advisors in the, uh, in, in the hierarchy, they're important, but the policy came before the politics. Hawke and his ministers, Keating and his ministers, Howard in the first couple of terms wanted to know what the advice was and then they would figure out the politics. Now, Rod Cameron used to be Labor pollster uh, for four elections, for four successful election, 83 through to 90, but he'd been Labor pollster since the 70s. He, um, he once suggested after an election, the, you know, the voters are not too happy with deregulation, they kicked him out of the room. <laughs> they <laughs> said, it. thanks for your numbers, mate, yeah. but don't tell us, don't tell us policy. Mm. Now, Turnbull has been trying to fix that. But I think that that is fundamentally the biggest issue today. If you were, if you were to grab him by the scruff of the neck and say, listen, you're freelancing on too many ideas. Uh, you know, I know you're an important person. I know you're on this power trip at the moment. But if a public service sat you down and said, you really do have to think about this and this is, these are the options, you know, park your ego at least for a second and listen to them. And I think that's the, that's the thing that's been missing for the last few years. It's, a right. respect, it's respect for independent advice. And perhaps uh, the intervention sometimes of advisors in that process? Yes, but, but I mean, take, take, take it to where we were and, and, and Abbott is sort of the anti-hawk. You know, he's got, as his chief of staff, a political operative and buzzing around him a whole lot of partisan political advisors and... You know, the first thing they did when they when they got into office was told the Secretary of the Treasury he was out. And no one had ever sacked a, a Treasury Secretary before in the Australian system. No, it never happened before, not even Keating. They didn't sack John Stone. And John Stone, you know, was a partisan. He turned out to be a National Party candidate. He was on the Joe for Canberra ticket. So he was a partisan public servant. But it never occurred to Labor to sack the head of the Treasury. And... He, he, once you break that seal, once it's all total politics and everybody around you has to choose a side, and it's the same with journos. A lot more journos have been forced to choose now than they did when I started out in the 80s. In fact, you have young journo today and partly your social media presence will sort of filter, you know, sort of sieve this out. Um, people will decide whether you are left or right, and that's a bad place for a journo to be. Very. Yeah, and there are very few, but I mean, I believe that uh, some people well, were impartial. I still thought Kerry O'Brien was impartial. I didn't know what side he fell on when he was uh, anchoring 7.30. I know he was also on late line, but you know, there was all this debate about is he read Kerry, you know, yeah. socialist Kerry O'Brien because he grilled Tony Abbott about, um, you know, the NBN. But, but, and Kerry's actually a good example. So uh, there was always that static around journos, but in, in a way one side or another are just basically trying to intimidate him and, but he wouldn't cop it but now it's sort of now so normalized and unfortunately i don't want to i certainly don't want to get into the abc i love the abc but you can see it in the abc's some of its behavior 
because they know charter obligation but they also know that morally they need to be in the centre. They are second guessing sometimes what a partisan attack will be on some of the things they do. And that again, in a funny way that's worse than being forced to choose Mm. um, trying to overemphasise neutrality when what you should be doing, you know, true neutrality is basically running with a story isn't it? Yes. You don't have to bring down down a government with every article or every broadcast but you just have to consistently you know, have your have your listener, your reader, your viewers' interests. You know, you know, you're basically you're basically conducting your public affairs on their behalf, not on behalf of um, the government or the opposition. Mm. I know this, these things seem obvious, but this is the thing we, we're trying to get to the bottom of what's broken down in the last few years, and it is respect for the independence of all public service, for media, politics. When it did respect the independence of uh, public service and were prepared to be grilled by media, those politicians were actually better communicators than the ones you've got today. Because the ones you've got today mm-hmm. spend a lot of time talking within their own digital bubble. Yes, and using um, a lot of, well, lacking in plain language. Yes. I think they could do that a lot more and certainly um, Dennis Glover makes that point many, many times. Uh, one of the uh, final things I want to touch on, George, is just the uh, inequality argument that Labor has latched onto here because it's really part of their platform now and it fits in a, an amazing suite of policies really with negative mm. gearing. Um, so in your view, I mean, you wrote a piece in the New York Times recently about Australia's leftward turn. I want to understand your view at the moment on, you know, are the conditions just more ripe at the moment for an interventionist approach and um, the Liberals and the Coalition Government are not equipped to do that? Is it... Sorry. Is Labor um, in a position of luck or good fortune in terms of the context that we're operating in? Yeah, I I suspect suspect Labor in a not dissimilar position today to what John Howard found himself in the mid-90s. So the things that Howard was talking about a lot in the 80s, which was more the conservative social agenda, there was going to be a time in the cycle where it seemed logical. And, I mean, he had difficulty governing, in, especially in that first two terms, until he sort of saw Hanson off. Now, Labor, Labor know that the... Look, all around the world, economists, most economists now are talking about some sort of, some sort of intervention because they know that the market left to its own devices is going to accentuate inequality. And inequality is now a really big issue, not just as, a, as, a, as you know, my wage versus your wage or my wealth versus your wealth. It's actually a much bigger issue as society's age, as rich society's age. The tricky thing that they've got is the younger generation are not going to be able to it can't look forward to the next 20 or 30 or 40 years of earning and wealth accumulation mm-hmm. to put themselves in the same position that the boomers are already when they retire. And as boomers, uh, more of them are retired, uh, the political system, partly because the populations are ageing, is tripwired towards the retention of their windfall gains at the expense of younger people. And you're also running, you know, in Australia's case, a mass migration program where the migrant lands on top, not at the bottom not where my parents started at yes. the bottom because skilled migrants filling gaps in the in the labour market that can't be filled locally because literally for every new entrant Australian born in the labour market there's one one Australian born person retiring mm. so the extra jobs are coming uh, to skilled migrants so that inequality issue not just has a uh, an income and wealth dimension and an ageing dimension it also has a uh, ethnic 
dimension. This is, these are really, really tricky things to manage and you can't manage them by just thinking that the market is going to get you a rational answer because the market, in a sense, is going to continue to accentuate the differences because it's going to reward the winner in a globalised world and that winner is going to be scooping up huge windfalls. Now, you can't tax them, but you can redistribute opportunity in other ways. And I think this is where Labor might come into their own. But uh, now this is quite a strange way to end this, but my thinking is that it will be more credible coming from a coalition government. The intervention will be more credible coming from a coalition government because they need to bring their people back to the idea of, you know, we sort of let it go too long and the government needs to come back in. You know, where it was in a way, we did it the right way around in the 80s and 90s. We didn't do the Raker thatch and sort of deregulation without social safety net. Mm. Labor did it. And Labor convinced working class people that you needed to open the economy. So I think you need a conservative government to convince the top end of town, small businesses, retirees, their constituency, that we need the government back in. So I think, and this is these are long cycles we're talking about, and I think the cycle, whilst it politically might favour Labor, the idea doesn't necessarily have to freeze out the coalition. It's just a question of whether they can come to terms with what's changed. Yes, and I guess bring on board the conservative elements of their party that are very vocally disunified. Yes, yes. Yeah, I love that way that you finish the discussion, George, because I think that's an excellent <laughs> aspiration and I hope any coalition voters and members are listening, not that they would. Well, you never know. We're a diverse community here, we but I do hope they I'm get the message. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. It's good. We're, we're Switzerland today. Uh, thank you so much George no, Megalogenis. You're welcome. Thanks for the chat. It's wonderful to have you. Uh, that was George Megalogenis who is a author and a former journalist for The Australian. He's uh, written a couple of quarterly essays and many books which you can find uh, at any good bookstore and he's going to be speaking this Sunday at a couple of events at the Festival of Questions which is being run by the Wheeler Centre for the Melbourne Festival. One of those is What is Right, What is Left? And there's another one which uh, has sparked my interest is also Philosophical Fight Club. So if you're interested, do check out the Wheeler Centre's website, wheelercentre.com, and you can book all your tickets there. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.